Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. And I'm so excited for you all to meet my guest today because, well, first of all, she's awesome, but more specifically, you know those beautiful moments where maybe you don't really know someone yet, but you start talking and immediately click, and you leave the conversation feeling more energized than drained. That is how I would describe the way that I met Anna Zi. Anna reached out to me a couple of weeks ago to discuss the work that we do through the Healthy Ocean Coalition. And as our conversation progressed, I reached this point where I was just like, uh, yeah, we need to have you on the podcast. Uh, so Anna is a graduate from University of Chicago Law School and is an environmental lawyer at Sierra Club, where she is using federal legislation to mitigate, um, or should I say litigate? Um, (laughs) I'm such a dork, I like crack myself up all the time. But anyway, she litigates to mitigate the climate crisis and its effects on people, animals, and habitats. Um, She will be interning with whale and dolphin conservation this fall to help with strandings and community engagement. And she is also exploring documentary film and visual storytelling as another medium to get people closer to marine mammals and ocean conservation. So if anyone out there knows me or listens to the show and you know my interests, you probably have a clearer idea of why we had that instant connection. And that's because we have quite a few overlapping interests. Anna, thank you so much for being here today and joining me. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jenna, for having me. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. I feel like we're we're like turning the tables a little bit from our last conversation where you had you had a handful of questions for me and now I have a handful of questions for you. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. Right, yeah. And I mean, you can also ask me questions or say anything that you would like because there are no rules here on the show. <laughs> it's, it's ours to make what we what we want out of it. So you are currently joining us from Brooklyn, is that correct? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I can currently hear a ton of beeps outside my apartment, traffic, people yelling, get out of my way. <laughs> it's just the most New York afternoon I've had in a while. So yeah. The city life is exciting. That makes me feel like slightly nostalgic for when I lived in the Boston area. I moved up to Maine in August and it's much quieter here. Um, so that nostalgia is very slight. I don't miss it too much, but sometimes you never know what you're going to overhear. The city is a wild place. It really is. Yeah. And and my boyfriend and I are currently looking for apartments and, you know, we just step outside of our apartment and we check back in and we're like, do we really want another year <laughs> in this loud cacophonous environment or do we want to be, you know, by the ocean? He's an ocean lover too. So we've been checking in about that too, but for now it feels like home. So we'll see. Yeah. Did you all grow up in New York City? Walk me down your your life path a little bit. Yeah, no. So uh, neither of us did actually. He was born and raised in San Diego and you know, was a surfer kid and, and grew up in that space. But I was born and raised uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada. 
Um, <clears throat> very interesting childhood there. Um, my parents would cover my eyes every time we'd drive down the strip um, in the 90s. It was very chaotic. Um, and yeah, I just knew I always wanted to, to get out of there. I didn't really appreciate the desert. Uh, and I, I have a, a way more loving perspective on it now that I've gone back and have been able to, you know, hike and explore and and experience moisturizer and not having to have my skin crack <laughs> in that insane heat. Um, so, so that's where I grew up. But, but then I went to USC for undergrad. So I was in LA and uh, got kind of reconnected to the ocean there. Um, was there for about five years, took a gap year there. Um, and then I went to law school in Chicago. And during that whole time, there was something about New York City that always called me. Um, you know, it's just kind of like this itch that I was unable to scratch. And I was supposed to go to NYU uh, once for undergrad and then for law school, but then ended up taking different paths. So I always felt like this little bit of a pang of regret. Um, so I was determined after um, law school to come back here for a little. And when my position went remote with the Sierra Club, I was given that opportunity. And so my boyfriend and I took the plunge and yeah, have had mixed feelings about it. But there's something, you know, I, I heard the other day someone said, New York is constantly ripping you off, but it makes you smile about it. Like you're happy to get ripped off here. And so that's how I feel um, right now. Have you heard the one that's like, New York is fun hell and Los Angeles is shitty heaven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. No, I haven't heard that. That's awesome. I saw that on like Instagram or Twitter a little while ago and was like that that somehow makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah. yeah that resonates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I heard you mention hiking and a couple of other like outdoor activities. I'm just curious to hear more about what are some of your favorite ways to connect with nature or what outdoor activities feed your soul? Yeah. So I think like, the, it's actually funny, the way that I got involved in conservation was not, you know, in, for conservation's sake necessarily. I didn't know what that was growing up. Um, and I think you resonate with this as well, um, given our conversation. It was just through recreation. It was just through enjoying nature and all the special ways that I was given the opportunity to do so. Um, and so I mentioned hiking. Hiking came a little later in my life, hiking and rock climbing when I was an adult, because when I was a kid, that wasn't really something that we did, although Las Vegas has some of the best hiking and rock climbing in the country, um, arguably in the world. Um, but my family were like a bunch of materialistic immigrant Persians. Like we didn't go hiking. Like we escaped Iran so that we didn't have to go camping and be living in the desert environment in that way. So we weren't trying or itching to get back out there. Um, so that was later in life. But the connection to nature that I've always experienced um, has always been in the water for me. Um, so it always started with swimming in large bodies of water and playing in in all the different ecosystems that surround the ocean itself so for example tide pools i remember being a kid and in uh, in la jolla it was where my parents would take us not because of the ocean necessarily but because of you know the the honestly the rich environment and um the different people there um being able to be around other Persians and beautiful weather and atmosphere, like that's the initial reasons that we went down there. But 
I would always find myself in the tide pools of La Jolla and my parents would have so much trouble getting me out of there because there were so many little worlds that were in each tide pool, you know, snails and crabs and fish and all these different colors and um, just ways of being and swimming um, and living in these little tiny microcosms of worlds. Um, So that's, I think, was one of my favorite ways to connect. And I didn't even, you know, call it that. I didn't have the language of calling it connection. It was just fun. You know, it's just playing in those awesome spaces. Um, So I think swimming in large bodies of water is one of my favorite ways. That's just like, you know, free, free diving or swimming. Um, Another way that I've recently gotten more connected to and have been able to experience more of is scuba diving. Um, and it's, it's something that I always knew I would get involved in, but I, you know, there was never a job or anything that asked me specifically to be certified, um, or that I had sought out. And so during the pandemic, I decided to get certified on a whim. I had nothing else to do and I was, you know, going crazy in my apartment. So I was like, I can take, you know, most of this is online. Like there's a couple days where you have to actually go and do the the physical components with your teacher, but a lot of it is studying online for a couple months. So I went ahead and did that. Um, And now something that I'm doing is volunteering at the New York Aquarium as a scuba diver. Um, And so what we do is we help clean the tanks. And it's really cool because the animals stay in the tanks. They don't like to interact with us as divers, but they do stay in the tanks. So I get to be up close and personal with them. And there's like a public facing component as well. Um, So little kids will pass by the glass while they're learning about all these cool species. And, you know, they'll point out to us and they'll be like mermaid and we'll be able to wave to them (laughs) and, you know, answer any questions they have about the animals. So um, it's opened up a lot of doors to to continue to connect. So that was the the memory that flashed through my mind when you were describing your experience volunteering at the aquarium is when I was a kid going to aquariums and seeing the scuba divers in the tanks and just being so envious of them being able to be in this like incredible, I know it's like man-made and constructed, but this like incredible tank filled with all of this wildlife. Um, and yeah, I think it plays into those memories of of like in our previous conversation for listeners, we kind of were reflecting on how we, what sparked our interest in getting into the line of work that we're in. And I, I feel like for both of us, it wasn't necessarily this like conscious decision of like, I am going to do climate work. And like for me personally, I didn't even realize that working in the climate or ocean space was an option for a really long time because, you know, when I was growing up and I think I don't want to speak for you, but like, you know, around that time when we were growing up, it's climate didn't seem to be as like at the forefront of people's minds or in that larger public discourse like it is now where you're always hearing about it and people are making it very clear that we need like all hands on deck. And so um, Anna and I were sort of going back and forth about these like different moments that we had of um, it, it's clear in hindsight that there, that was probably the path that we were going to go on or the interest was there. Um, but it took a little bit of trying different things and having different experiences to 
to like connect with this like larger climate advocacy, climate movement. Um, and some of those experiences, you know, children are having now, like the children that are looking at you in the tank. Um, so it's just super interesting to me to hear these things like come full circle and then uh, listening to your stories and see what comes up for me in terms of memories of of like, oh, yeah, that probably was a formative moment when I was standing there in the aquarium watching somebody that's super cool, like diving in the tank. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I also think that, um, you know, there's so many ways that we can continue this important work of getting people excited and inspired. And I'm excited to talk to you more, you know, in this conversation about the different ways that I'm exploring and that you're exploring helping do that. Because, you know, they're the people who did that before us, it started off with the scientists, right? Scientists talking about climate change and, and still putting out that research even today. And then now the rest of the world in all their capacities, uh, in all the different ways that they can help, whether they're an engineer, whether they're in tech, whether they're in film, there's so many different spaces that people can help this um, work that we're doing. So yeah, I think it's awesome that we're all finding the space that, that we can contribute in. Absolutely. Um, so going, we're going to like circle back a little bit to sort of this this path, because I feel like I, I just really like to start the show with taking some time to like get to know the human behind the work um, and like understanding like what your connection is to the to nature and the planet and like where your favorite places are. And so for me, at the risk of sounding like a super millennial, but like the places, which I am, so the shoe fits, so I can sound that way, but <laughs> there are places that live rent-free in my head that I feel like I have this, like, connection to that's, like, so deep that they live at my core. One of those places for me is Down East Maine, which for listeners that aren't familiar with Maine geography, Down East actually refers to this section of Maine's coast that's, like, halfway, maybe more than halfway up all the way north to the Canadian border. So it's sort of counterintuitive because it's the northeasternmost portion of the coast, but we call it down east. So if you've ever been to Acadia, you've been down east. Um, anyway, all of that to say is that is such a special place for me. And I would love to hear more about like, are there any places that you really connect to that like are – like there are places you visit in your mind when you're not there. You look forward to visiting when um, you go on vacation or visit your family. Yeah. Oh, man. What a great question. Um, there are. I mean, I mentioned one already, which was La Jolla, really just the whole California coast. But there are certain parts of Southern California that just pop out to me in terms of biodiversity and, you know, seeing sea lions surf with surfers. Um, seeing dolphins off the coast. Um, it just makes me feel like the way that I feel when I see this photo of myself. I was looking at um, my parents' photo album the other day, and there was a photo of me, and I was wearing this like mermaid swimsuit with like little green scales. I was maybe like five or six, and I was like doing like a starfish jump in the air, and I was just elated. Like light was <laughs> shooting out of my eyes, and it was because I was at the beach, and I got to spend the day at the beach, and I was covered in sand, and got to find little animals. Um, so I definitely think 
from my childhood, that place would live rent-free in my mind forever. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then later in life, um, you know, I, I took a very hyper-academic focus to my career. Um, so I, I wasn't really uh, able to bring in a lot of that connection with nature and with ocean specifically into my life, other than little bouts here and there. Um, but one of them was when I was studying abroad. I studied abroad in Melbourne in Australia. And my friend and I uh, did a little trip, like a couple week long trip to Indonesia and Thailand. Um, and we didn't do anything, you know, super involved in the water like scuba diving, but we did go out on the water with some locals on the boat. And I just remember thinking, I've never seen water this turquoise, this bright blue in my life. Like, if you would have shown me a picture, I would have told you that it was edited. It was just so beautifully bright. And just to think that there's such variation in the different, you know, ecosystems and biomes of the ocean, even though it's one big ocean, um, I think that that color I'll, I'll never get out of my mind. Um, and then a third one is is a little more recently. It was during the height of the pandemic. Um, I was in Chicago. I was in law school. And really everyone from my law school had moved back home to finish their online classes back home with their parents. And I stayed back in Chicago. And I found myself very alone. And one of the spaces that I was craving that I couldn't get was swimming and, and the, the pool had been closed because of the pandemic. And I felt so stuck. And one day when I went out to the water, uh, looking out over Lake Michigan, uh, that's where my school is. It's in Hyde Park lo- overlooking Lake Michigan. I just thought to myself, like, why? There, there's an open body of water right here. Like, why don't I go swimming right here? Um, so I did a little bit of research to make sure that, you know, the water was healthy enough to support swimmers. And I'd seen swimmers there before. So uh, it was okay from what I found, and and it was just the most freeing experience to you know have to be wearing masks and not see anyone and be super cons- constrained in all these other parts of my life, but then to be able to get into Lake Michigan and as far as my eye can see, there's just open water and I can swim as far as I want. You know, it just felt so freeing, um, and so I think that's another space that. For me, you know, it felt like church, and I, I'll never forget having that opportunity and being able to build, you know, a community with the swimmers there by accident. You know, I think those those beautiful things can come up when you least expect it, and, and when it involves nature, it's the most rewarding for me. Yeah, honestly, I like. I wish we were on like a video podcast right now. You just gave me chills telling that story because like it put me back into that that like mental and emotional space that we were all in when lockdown was really intense. And, um, it, it's just sounded like such a powerful moment of, uh, fine. It's just, it was so freeing. Like, I feel like I'm at a loss of words, just trying to like describe how I'm feeling right now, hearing that because I also had similar moments, more of like going out for like our, like my first hike, when we started feeling comfortable, like going outdoors and realizing that we could do that. And that was a great way to, you know, get out of your, your home and, and like emerge back out into the world. And I think that that's just such a beautiful story. I also was thinking about, because you mentioned Indonesia, um, 
there are places for me, and I'm not sure if you have this this uh, experience also, where you feel like drawn at like a soul level to like a place that you've never been to. So for a really long time, Bali was a place for me like that. And I was really fortunate to be able to travel there through grad school. Um, But another one for me is Scotland. And it almost, it's like this like longing for a place that you've never been to, but you're like being feels like it's familiar or it feels like it knows that place. Um, I'm like, I don't know if it's like a past life thing or like, like derail us into some like deep conversation. But do you have any places like that that you've never been to, but you feel this this like connection to that you're drawn to it? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's funny you say that. Um, I've I've had that for different places in my life, and one of them. Um, I actually was able to fulfill, and unfortunately, it was not at all how I imagined it. Oh, <laughs> it was <no>. terrible because, <laughs> like Bali, for me, for me being in Bali, I was like, yes, I, I like, it felt like a piece of a puzzle was like completed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, no, that's so good to hear. And and for me, Australia was one of them. It was more incredible than I had ever imagined. You know, I just watched like Kangaroo Jack or something. And I was like, oh, is that what it's going to be like? You know, but it was just so beautiful. The people, the culture, their ethos, you know, the wide open land, the the coastal areas. It was just so beautiful. Um, the one that didn't click for me, and I want to give it another shot because I, I'm convinced we did it the wrong way, but I had that same feeling about Cambodia. Um, and when I went there, I was, I guess, overwhelmed with with a few um, earthly things that I didn't expect to be overwhelmed with, like the humidity, the heat, you know, the tourism and commercialism. I think I had like a preconceived notion of, you know, being at Anchor Wat by myself and having this spiritual experience and then mm-hmm. getting there and everybody had that desire too. So it was just like me and thousands of other tourists. Um, and so I think, you know, having having better expectations about what I'm going into for those experiences. Um, there's also something about Antarctica um, and there's a particular underwater, for, or excuse me, a wildlife photographer named Sue Flood, um, who was recently in Antarctica and was on another podcast um, describing her experiences there. And I think uh, being able to experience wildlife in the wild and hear how she was describing the penguins that she was seeing passing by there. Um, their little camping ground and the fact that they're so particular about taking every single piece of trash with them back on the plane, you know, so that Antarctica can stay as beautiful and pristine as it is. Um, That really spoke to me. And it also spoke to me about how important our work is, our collective work is, so that not only are we keeping that space clean and beautiful when we go visit as individuals, but keeping that space alive so that, for example, you know, ice sheets aren't melting, 
by the thousands and ruining the homes of the animals that we care so much about. You know, the most iconic that I can think of is polar bears. Um, but there's so many different animals and ecosystems there um, that I want to experience. And, you know, like many other people want my kids to experience, want other humans to experience. Um, so I think that's somewhere that's pulling to me. I don't know how I'll get there, but I trust that the universe will find a way if I put it out there, you know? Yeah. It's like you just keep putting it out there. And I, I'm like, this is, I feel like I'm not, I don't, I don't connect with the identity of being super millennial, but I really wanted to say manifest it. And really, yeah. <laughs> no, I know, but I feel like now people make fun of people who say that, which I shouldn't care what other people think. But um, I'm like, all right, I'm just settling into my like true millennial <laughs> self today. Yeah. Um, we're going to manifest this trip. Thank you. you. Yes. Yes, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody put your collective energy toward it. <laughs> um, I mean, some one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this show is because from our our previous conversation, it's just so clear to me how passionate you are about this work. And that that led me to like think about like what are we gonna talk about today? And I have a couple of like a little bit more vague broader questions just because I'm curious to see like what your perspective and your take is on this. Um, so what do you, like, what is it that you love the most about the ocean? Yeah. Oh man. Um, I think what I love most about the ocean is actually the same thing as what, what a healthy ocean means to me. You know, like what I love most about the ocean is its ability to rebound if we give it the space and the time to do so. Um, and when I say rebound, what I'm talking about in, in like a visual and a tangible perspective is biodiversity. You know, so I, I was just talking to, I was just watching a movie with my boyfriend. We were watching The Prehistoric Planet, I think is what it's called. It's a new series on Apple TV. And um, uh, it's it just BBC using like imaging technology and they're just kind of creating a visual for what it would look like if the dinosaurs were still on the earth and what the earth would look like. And that includes, of course, the oceans. Um, and it, it was unfortunate, I guess, that that had to be done through imaging to display what an incredibly biodiverse ocean would look like. And of course, there are still parts of the ocean that, that have that biodiversity that are worth protecting. Um, but just to see just huge shoals of fish and these gorgeous alien creatures that, by the way, the ancestors still live, you know, in the deepest parts of the ocean, you know, these robust ecosystems just living and thriving and feeding itself. And I just think that that's, that's what I love most is when I, when the ocean can be the ocean, you know, when we allow all these creatures to grow and thrive and do what they're meant to do and be the parts of the ecosystem that they're meant to be. Um, so yeah, it looks like life to me. Um, and, and I think the first time, you know, the first time that I ever went diving, I, it's it's called the discovery dive when you're not certified. So you just go down with like a team and and you're still like using all the diving equipment, but you have like a professional there watching your gauge and things like that. Um, the first time I went diving was off um, 
Cairns. I went to the Great Barrier Reef when I was, again, studying abroad. And I was so excited because, you know, so many of the original ocean documentaries highlighted the Great Barrier Reef and the abundance of life there. And so I was so excited to get a glimpse of that. And we were on the boat for like hours, just swimming, just, excuse me, going all the way out into the ocean. And we get there and we strap up and I get under the water. I have big open eyes and all I see is like that white skeletal coral, you know? And I, I just was so confused and we didn't really get a primer on the fact that that's what we were going to see or that we would just see like one lonely starfish in the middle of all that white coral. And, you know, I think that one of the reasons for that is that they try to keep tourism, you know, to a particular part of the reef that may already be dead so that other parts of the reef that are still healthy don't get too much human interaction. But I also know that coral bleaching is a result of so many other problems that happen with climate change, including acidification. And so I just thought to myself, like, wow, like if, if, this if this beautiful skeletal eerie experience is what death in the ocean looks like if i get to experience what life looks like or if i can help others experience that that itself is a motivator to get in there and to help do this kind of work you know is getting proximate to these spaces um so i think that that's what I would love most about the ocean is its ability to rebound and to let life thrive if we take our finger off of it and let it live. Yeah. And I mean, that that's a similar experience that I had when I was in Bali. We went out um, to explore some coral reefs and it could be the same thing where they sort of bring all of the people that are visiting the reefs to the same place as you were mentioning, but it, it was... Um, very eye-opening in a, in a different way, a way that I didn't expect to dive down and see um, just a kind of a lifeless bleached reef. Um, there also were a number of spots that there had been dynamite fishing. Um, so it was, it was both the bleached reef, but then places where it was just like completely blown out. Um, and yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's just, even though maybe it wasn't what I was expecting to see, it was incredibly powerful and motivating in an entirely different way. Like seeing the ocean and when it's not healthy um, adds a little extra motivation to people that are, I mean, not even people that are working in this space, but I think just thinking from my own perspective of working in this space, like it added a little more motivation to me than I already had to continue to work to make sure that we can get these like bright, vibrant, colorful reefs back. And I know you you definitely touched on it a little bit while you were reflecting on, you know, what you love most about a healthy ocean I mean, uh, but what, I mean, what does a healthy ocean mean to you? Like, what does it look like in addition to these, these resilient, this giant resilient space filled with wildlife? Yeah. Um, you know, I think when you were asking that question, a visual just came up for me, which is our participation in the ocean and our play in the ocean, right? So when I think about a healthy ocean, it's not only healthy insofar as it's biodiverse. I think it's also healthy enough 
where we can swim in it. You know, I, I'm here in New York City, and there's so many awesome projects that have been going on here, including like the Oyster Project, where we're taking billions of oysters and putting them um, into the East River and the Hudson River to try and clean out the river and increase the health of the river there so that people can actually go swimming. You know, we can start eating the fish. I think right now it's it's like if you're there's a recommendation on a government website uh, for the city of New York that says something like if you're not pregnant and if you're between the ages of like 18 and 55 you can have one fish a month from the East River <laughs> and anything more than that is unhealthy and if you're pregnant absolutely don't even think about it you know so to be able to create spaces where people who live on coasts whether they're in big cities, whether they're in remote spaces, they can enjoy their um, access and, and have recreation in those spaces, I think is really important. And I think that there's a way to do that in addition to protecting spaces. So I think marine protected areas um, are a super important way to have that to have a healthy ocean as well. Um, and yeah, I think that those two things can live together and they should live together, right? Like we don't want to cut off our relationship with the ocean. We want to be able to coexist with it in a healthy way that includes limits and includes an understanding of it as not abundant, right? It will grow if we give it the space to grow, but it is not a, a non-renewable resource. It, it, it has to be something that you know, we give the space to so that it can regrow and have time. It's kind of like, you know, when I go to Central Park here, we block off certain areas of the grass with fences because it, the grass needs time to regrow. If we're constantly stomping and sitting on it, it, it won't be able to be green and luscious. And it's frustrating when I have my picnic gear with me because I'm like, okay, I want to just sit down on the grass and <laughs> have a sandwich. But I also recognize that it needs space and time to regrow too. So I think living in balance in that way um, is another way that we can experience a healthy ocean. Yeah. And thinking of ourselves as humans, as part of the system, because we absolutely are However, I think that it's very easy for a lot of people that don't spend maybe as much time as we do thinking about it to see ourselves as separate because we've created this man-made world where it is fairly easy until, you know, the major impacts of climate change and massive storms and things like that impact people where you have like a big natural disaster and you can't ignore it. But otherwise, it can be pretty easy to to think of yourself as separate from the larger ecosystem until you start like zooming in on just how interconnected everything is. Like your example with uh, the fish limits and how much you can consume and thinking about some people, subsistence fish, I'm sure right there in New York City or like when I was living in the greater Washington DC area, um, there are a lot of people that would fish for their meals every single day and they had similar limits, but when it's either eat or don't eat, um, that is a choice that people, I mean, I would make the same choice with if I'm going to eat or not, of course I'm going to go fish and eat that or feed it to my family. And then you think about how that links to health problems that goes into the whole system. Um, so, I mean, working in this space is just so fascinating because everything is just so interconnected and there isn't really a problem that just exists 
in a silo. And I think that that is really getting back to that point earlier that we were talking about of how we really do need everybody in this space. We need people from all different backgrounds, all different levels of expertise, people that live all over the place, like all hands on deck to address this ocean health, beyond ocean health, climate issue, because it's totally systemic and no one is separate from it. And I think that for me is like a a big motivator for being in this space um, is that recognition of just how everything that we do is impacting something else and most likely many different things all at the same time. And um, I know you touched on it a little bit, but uh, is that does that resonate with you with what influenced you to pursue a career in the climate and ocean conservation space? Or like what is that big driver for you that keeps you moving along down this path? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the ocean, capital O ocean, was always my through line. I guess I just I didn't I wasn't consciously aware of that until relatively recently, you know? So I I went to law school um, not really knowing what I wanted to do. I I went to law school in large part because, like I mentioned, I come from a brown immigrant family and I kind of had three options. It was be a lawyer, engineer, or doctor. And um, I was terrible at math and very blood averse. So I was (laughs) like, okay, I guess I'm going to go to law school. Um, And so I, you know, started doing speech and debate classes in high school and college and, you know, thought this is a space where I'm I'm doing pretty well in this space. So this is something that I can pursue and I guess get get myself up into a space of of power, you know, to be able to do something of the things I care about eventually and then tie that back in eventually. But I didn't know consciously what the spaces I cared about were, you know, I just knew that I liked going to the ocean. I liked swimming. I liked surfing. I liked animals. Um, and it wasn't until my summer after my first 1L, my first year of law school, that I summered at a big law firm. Um, and that's very common for students uh, in American law schools. Uh, a lot of them will spend their summer doing an internship at really big law firms that tend to represent um, corporate clients. Um, And you get a lot of great experience, um, very hands-on experience. But the nature of the work for me was, uh, for lack of a better word, deadening. Um, I felt very exhausted. I didn't feel um, fire behind what I was doing every day. Um, And I just thought to myself, you know, this firm is, is offering me a position after I graduate, which is great. That's a ton of security. That is something that I've always wanted. But there's something more calling me and I don't have a name for it. I don't know what it is, but I have to look. I have to keep looking because the current feeling, it's just not it. And, you know, that's powerful in and of itself to know what is not it for you, you know? Um, And so I started going to therapy, to be honest. Um, uh, I didn't know where else to turn. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was like, let me call on, you know, people who get it in my community. And I, you know, tried different therapists and found one that just resonated on so many levels. And I felt I could trust her, which was really big for me to trust a stranger. Um, And was able to, over time, come to the realization that, again, that was my through line, was ocean conservation, 
being able to uh, be connect and protect animals and let them live in the ways that they were meant to live. Um, and I would have a lot of dreams about this, like every other night, even still, I, I have dreams about marine mammals, like, and that's my buy-in, you know, like climate change and ocean <laughs> conservation are the so important to me, but dreams. marine mammals, <laughs> yeah, they're just, I would always be dreaming about dolphins and whales and sea lions and, <laughs> and so like, cool. I was, I was always like in the dreams pointing to them. Like I'd be with a group of people and they'd be looking at all different places and I'd be trying to draw their attention attention, you know, over to the marine mammals or an ocean mountain scene that I was looking at. I was always trying to like point people in that direction. Um, so I knew that general space was what I wanted to do. And now in my life, I'm entering all these different stages of using my skills and my interests to, you know, bring that into my waking world and to bring people's attention there. Isn't it fascinating just to look back at your path and ev like everything just seems so clear and, and when you're reflecting on it, um, it definitely feels that way for me. And I really resonated with a lot of the experiences that you you noted in terms of just where your your path took you to, to lead you to where you are now. And something I reflect on sometimes is these moments in my life that were, you know, I, I think back on them as like the low points, like some of the worst moments that I've experienced to date were the jumping off points for me to end up where I am now. So, um, for example, when I was growing up, I, you know, I, I definitely feel like I am, it was a person that was sort of made to, like, I felt like I was being like shoved into a mold that I didn't fit into for a very long time of like fitting into that classic schooling system, testing system, made to feel like I need to go to this four-year university um, which I did all of those things, but I felt incredibly lost during that entire time because I was trying to do something that I was told that I needed to do and not necessarily listening to what was calling to me. And it all sort of came to a head and I'm, I won't get into like full details on it because I don't want to um, like trigger anybody that's fully listening. But I essentially, I had a combination of things happen where I was in a job after I graduated from my undergrad that made me uh, just, it was like sort of what you were talking about. Like I, there was no soul in it there. I, I felt no sense of purpose. I absolutely was miserable. Like sometimes I'd come home and I'd cry because it was just the worst, but I was getting paid. So I stuck with it. And then I also was in this absolutely like horrendous relationship with somebody um, that turned into an ab abusive situation. And so when I got out of that and out of my job, I was, I just like hit this place where I was like, I need to go. Like I physically need to leave here. And I just started looking around for whatever was available and everything that was calling to me was environmental work. So I was looking for internships at um, wildlife refuges. I found one in Virginia and I didn't even think like twice about it. I applied, fortunately got in and like that was the first 
real conservation job that I had. And ever since then, it's just been this like upward path that has just led me in this like sort of meandering, but what feels like a more, the most straight line that I've experienced so far, straight to where I am now. And it's like, there's this clarity, but going through that moment, it was awful. But now I'm like, thank in a way thankful for it. Cause it's like those, those really confusing, really down moments sometimes are where this like seed is planted of, um, you know, I, something's got to change. I've got to make this jump to be the person that I need to be and and to feel safe and fulfilled. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Jenna. And I, I just want to say how much I resonate with that. I mean, I'm thinking about that summer that I was at that, you know, big law firm. I too was coming out of an abusive relationship and just feeling so lost. Every single day was just like a a battle to find like a semblance of hope or what do I do? Where am I going? You know, some feeling of worth, you know, and to be able to look at that moment now and have gratitude for it, you know, as one collective, I guess, equivalent of the dark night of the soul, you know, that if I didn't hit that space, I would be continuing down these paths that were not it. They just were not it. And so to be able to be like, oh, this is absolutely not it. Okay, let me center myself and figure out what is with the help of others, you know, other people who are able to reflect back to me who I am and what I truly care about. It's the biggest gift. And in the moment, it it absolutely didn't feel like it. But now we're able to look back at it and be like, okay, that helped me find my North Star. And I'm moving toward that every day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And I appreciate you being open and, and vulnerable with me about that too. I know it's not necessarily easy to talk about. It's not something that I don't think I've ever really mentioned it on the show. I um, don't mention it to a lot of people because I, you know, that's a painful thing to bring up. So I appreciate you listening and, and sharing with me about your experience. Um, and yeah, I think in, in, when you look, just looking back at it, it's, it's, um, feels I feel like I keep talking about like my soul's journey and our soul's journey but in life the some of the biggest lessons that we we need to learn are the ones that are the most painful and not fun to go through but yeah I mean look at where we are now and and the motivator that those moments were for us to to grow into the incredible strong humans that we are today <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so I feel like because I'm sitting here with a lawyer, I've got to ask you, do you have a favorite piece of environmental legislation? Like we're going to get wonky with it. Do you have like a favorite policy or one that you think is like so important that you want to call out right now? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I have a couple and I'll start with um, one that I heard about uh, in law school. And I remember in law school, you know, there, there's there's so many different classes that you take. There's crim, criminal law, civil law, you know, procedure, evidence. There's all these different spaces. And I was present for them, but I wasn't, you know, all in excitement-wise because a lot of it is just like you're learning the, the black and white law. Um, and there was this case, though, that I remember – 
I was just like shooting my hand up in the air like I had never done before. And I was so excited to comment on it. And I wanted to figure out why the judges voted the way they did. And it's called Winter versus NRDC. Uh, and it's essentially a Supreme Court case where um, the Navy was using sonar um, to test um all this different equipment that they were testing, and they cited their use of that equipment um, as national defense. So they said it's very important for national defense. And so that interest was being um, put up against the interest of um, marine mammals and whether their uh, well-being was valuable enough to relocate, I guess, the Navy's sonar testing. And apparently the testing was so loud that marine mammals were dying, they were unable to eat, um, they would go crazy. There were a lot of negative um, results from this from this case. And and that kind of got me excited about, okay, what are and what are the pieces of legislation that help wildlife in particular? And some of them that I work with now at the Sierra Club, um, when I'm lucky enough to to have cases that come up in this space, one of them is the ESA. Um, it's the Endangered Species Act, um, and it's actually the country's most effective law to protect at-risk species from extinction, and it has an insane success rate. So 99% of the species that are listed on it have avoided extinction, and that's because when species get put on this list, they have the backing of the entire U.S. government behind them, so nothing can get done unless the U.S. government um, like clears an action, whether it's through development or something that the government is planning. If there's anything that's going to harm an animal that's on that list, it can't go forward or it has to be relocated or changed in some way. So it's a lot of protection. Um, I will say though, it's so difficult to get on that list. Uh, and so many species go extinct before they can get protection. And, and that's because there's not enough funding. Um, for the agencies, the federal agencies that are responsible for the implementation of the ESA. Um, so I think that's a space that we could really use a lot of help on is helping these agencies get funding because they're so backlogged and the animals and the plants uh, that are meant to be going on this list and deserve protection are the ones that suffer. Um, so I think that ESA has such an incredible track record and if only, as with many things, we could get funding behind it, um, that's one space that it could do even better. Um, and then, yeah, the other piece of legislation that I'll offer that gets me very excited uh, is the MMPA, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. <laughs> love it. I'm, I'm laughing because like with both the ones you called out, I'm like, yes, yes. Yeah. I love awesome. those ones too. <laughs> yeah. there And there are so many, I mean, like, you know, like there's so many important pieces of federal legislation, but I'm just I'm picking out two. Um, and, and this one's so awesome because it was actually the very first act by Congress that specifically called for an ecosystem approach to wildlife management. And so what that means is it was the first time that Congress said, okay, wait, these animals are a part of an ecosystem, right? So these are not just individuals. If we aren't thinking about these issues 
in an interdependent way, which is what you touched on a little earlier, Jenna, if that's not our guiding light, then these animals aren't going to make it. We have to think about them as being a part of an ecosystem and that they're interconnected. And so it protects all marine mammals, and that includes some of my favorites, so whales, dolphins, seals, sea lions, manatees. They're hilarious. I love them. Um, (laughs) Polar bears, you know, mammals that don't you know, always stay in the water, but live dual lives on land and the water and sea otters. Um, So just some favorite animals are in there. Uh, And the other thing that it does is it formalized marine mammal health and stranding response programs. So what that means is that it made a formal system so that when marine mammals like dolphins and whales are stranded on beaches or they're suffering from health problems, there's actually funding and commissions designated to be able to go in and and see if there's like a disease spreading or if there's, you know, um, damage is caused by boats or what are the things that are causing mammals to die in large numbers so that that can be addressed in a more formal manner. So it does a lot of good. I think it still has a lot of ways to go, but those are two awesome pieces of legislation. Yeah. And so when you were talking about the noise pollution case with sonar, it made me think about this organization that we partner with through the Healthy Ocean Coalition called Ocean Conservation Research. I wanted to shout them out on the show for listeners. If you're interested in hearing what sonar sounds like underwater, what seismic blasts, what shipping, like they have this whole library on their website where they collect underwater acoustics and, um, you can explore this library and really get a good feel for if there's something living underwater and you can't get away from these sounds, just how jarring these these noises are to the point where, if, especially if you're an animal that uses sonar or your hearing or echolocation or anything like that to find your food and mates and navigate, um, just how big of a problem this is. So just shouting out ocean conservation research. And then, um, so this, this, I'm like back to the, the vague questions we, we called out, um, you called out two very important pieces of environmental policy. And as we can see, they're all policies, pretty complex. Like you can have a piece of policy on paper that seems like the most perfect thing in the entire world, but without the funding or without the implementation or out with, without robust stakeholder input, so on and so forth, it might just be like a, a piece of paper. So what in your mind makes quote unquote good environmental policy, good climate policy, or just good policy in general? What does that look like? Yeah, yeah, a few things come to mind. Um, One is environmental policy that kind of backs itself up in the written legislation, right? So it has like requirements, it has like, you know, percentages of budgets set aside, you know, it kind of backs itself up so that 
in the future, if there's like a change of administration or if there's something else that comes up that could potentially block its implementation, the law would require you know, it's, it's furtherance, you know, that it, that it has people in, in different parts of government, um, whether that's the executive branch or legislative committee or whatever, to be able to make sure that it's actually being executed. So I think having that self-fulfilling aspect is important. Um, And then just from a bigger picture perspective, you know, I was, I was doing legal research for a case the other day um, for my work, and I was looking at the legislative history of the MMPA, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And uh, what that means is like when legislators are drafting a piece of legislation, they'll have um, a like they'll have documented the history behind what goes into making those decisions, you know, how they want um, lawmakers and people in, in the um, executive space to be able to implement that, how to define things. You know, they have all that background information of what the meaning behind their words were um, in that legislative history. And so when I was reading that history for a case we were working on, I was noticing how in that piece of legislation specifically, the drafters were intent on framing the reason why we are valuing protecting these marine animals in light of human needs. So they were saying things like, you know, it's really important that we protect these marine mammals because without them, human activities can be hindered. Um, You know, there's so many spaces for fishing and hunting or other activities that we rely on these marine mammals for. And without them, you know, the ecosystem is going to suffer and therefore we are going to suffer. And I think that's such an important part of the puzzle. It's so important, but I don't think it's the whole picture. And I think it falls short when it's used by itself. So yeah, part of the work that I want to do is I want to help people truly feel on an internal level what it means to value animals, marine mammals, nature, the ocean for its inherent worth so that as important as they are to humans, they're valuable in and of themselves, you know, not even involving us. And so I think having legislation where that is put into the legislative history, it's put into the actual text as these things are valuable and worth caring about and caring for in and of themselves, I think we can experience stronger protections because then the focus is taken off of just humans and it has more of that ecosystem approach that we were talking about. It's humans and these valuable animals themselves. Yeah, it's decentering ourselves from these management plans. And you're reminding me of um, a meeting that I was in yesterday, actually, where a marine biologist was exploring some of the ways that we manage our fisheries, um, specifically here in the Northeast, where you have these fishery management councils that are sort of setting the, you know, the take limits and closures and and things like that. And, and a big point that this person made that resonated with me is managing from a perspective of like what you were saying, where you're commodifying everything that lives in the ocean and sort of playing it against how it benefits humans versus allowing the thing that lives in the ocean to just 
live in the ocean because that's what it does. And there is inherent value in that. So I'm really, really happy that you brought that point up. Yeah, absolutely. And will you tell me more about your role at Sierra Club um, and like what kinds of issues and projects and policies you're working on? I know you probably can't talk about some of the things because they're like probably active, like ongoing cases, but are there certain issues that you specialize in or anything that like really like resonates or sticks out in your mind as um, just, you know, important projects or, or what what is like front and center in terms of the issues that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm so happy to talk about this because the Sierra Club is has been an organization that like I've always looked up to, you know, and I I, I couldn't believe it when I got my position here. <clears throat> um, and and yeah, so with the caveat that that a lot of this is ongoing litigation, so I can only give like a a bird's eye view. Um, I am a legal fellow with the organization, so every year uh, when people graduate from law school, the Sierra Club takes about one or two people um, from American law schools and takes them in as their legal fellows, and they help the attorneys on uh, all campaigns. So Sierra Club has different campaigns. It has OWA, Our Wild America. That's what we think about when we think about Sierra Club. You know, it's it's the animals, it's the lands, it's it's all that stuff um, protecting those spaces. <clears throat> We also have um, oil and gas drilling um, and also shutting down oil factories. That's another one of our campaigns. Um, we do building electrification, which has become very important in the flight fight against the climate, climate crisis, um, is helping people electrify their homes, their workspaces, helping the government electrify their buildings, because so much of our energy comes out of those spaces. And so to be able to have, instead of like a gas, stove and electric stove in new buildings or to be able to retrofit old buildings, it not only saves the individual so much money, but it also saves the rest of us so much money and takes up so much less energy. So I think that's really important as we move forward as well. We're also doing a lot of um, work on electric vehicles. So helping states around the U.S. Um, get their charging stations up, figure out funding, you know, make sure that a percentage of their sales in the coming years are electric vehicles so we can transition away um, from those other um sources. Um, and also there's a lot of work that we're doing helping people in the South, um, in Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, um, a lot of states in the South, uh, people who are low income and particularly black and brown Americans who are low income, um, they don't get a lot of help with their electric bills and they have a huge energy burden. So a large portion of their income has to go toward their electricity bills. Um, and so we're trying to help get their homes weatherized um, and make sure that they have um, something that they can save money on and put money on toward the other things that they need to spend on. You know, they cut from their groceries, like having to turn on the gas stove to heat up your home because you don't have adequate heating. Just really difficult positions that um, we're putting people in. So being able to help them out of that and weatherize their homes so that they can have efficient energy is proving really important as well. Um, and then obviously my work that I'm most excited about is anything related to the ESA and the MMPA. Um, so we've been working with uh, Florida to um, help the Florida panthers. They're an endangered species there. 
um, and then also helping in Alaska the polar bear populations there, making sure that they have robust uh, populations and that they're not um, getting taken, uh, as the language would call it, by oil and gas drilling um, to make sure that their populations can grow um, since right now they're endangered as well. So pretty cool work over there. Yeah, super important work. And my understanding is that you're pivoting roles coming up. Uh, is that correct? You're, so tell me more about that, your role with whale and dolphin conservation. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited about this space. You know, I, I told myself, you know, you have your law degree, you've passed the bar, You there's space always in this world for you to come back and do litigation. Um, but I've been excited about policy work. Um, and I think that something that I want to do before I get really fully into the policy space is get some hands-on experience and indulge, you know, the inner younger part of me who wants to be by the ocean and in the ocean and helping the animals that are so special to her. Uh, and so I've been looking at how I can do that on the ground. And one of the spaces that came up that uh, I just got a position with is with whale and dolphin conservation. And so what I'll be doing is I'll be responding to stranded marine mammals. So all the mammals that I talked about. And there's 100 miles um, of coastline in Massachusetts that we're going to be helping uh, stranded marine mammals with. And so we also manage data collection. We're creating outreach material and we're engaging with the public, which I think is really important um, because, you know, we can't be everywhere all at once. So to be able to have people uh, on the coast seeing, you know, like a stranding issue, seeing animals uh, in danger, uh, in pain, like knowing that they can call us, you know, getting that connected, getting that connection to them, I think is really important to be to being able to help those animals. Um, and then also just educating people. So we're going to be doing stranding events as well. Um, so I'm super excited about that. I'm looking forward to being in the water. You know, I think it's it's awesome to to have the privilege to work remotely and work at a desk. But there's also a part of me that aches to actually be in the spaces that I care about. So very excited about that opportunity. Yeah, I'm already like I'm making these connections. So thinking about how important community building is for both of us, and I mean just in the broader climate space in general. Um, there is somebody that you may cross paths with that hosts a show on this network and also works for the Marine Mammal Stranding Team through the Seacoast Science Center in New Hampshire. I think they go all the way down into um, Massachusetts. So you may cross paths with this person named Brian Yurisitz. He's like good friend of mine, good friend of the show, good friend of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Um, but I'm like sitting here like, oh, if you don't already know this person, I should make this connection. And it also like happens to be this really great segue into what I was planning on asking you next, which is like thinking about how much time that we've already spent, like through our, com our previous conversation in this one, like getting at the value of, of building community, building relationships, being inclusive and like opening this circle into this space where like everybody can participate in, um, you know, playing some sort of part in overcoming and like mitigating the impacts of climate change. Well, and I'm just curious to hear more about like what your thoughts are on the power of community and what can be achieved when 
people are all working together and supporting each other versus um, sometimes what we see in the conservation community and then just the larger like world in general is this like competitive spirit. I think, you know, in America, we live in a very individualistic society. So I think it's a, a very ramped up here. Um, but like, what is that value of when you, you shift your thinking into, to being a more open person leading with mindfulness and building these communities and relationships where everyone's supporting each other to, um, you know, pro- progress and, and move toward this shared and common goal. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for asking that. And I think, you know, I think it just goes back to our, our theme of interconnectedness, right? Like it's, we are a community and it takes all of us to be able to do this. And if we shut any part of the community out of the conversation, we're all going to suffer as a result of it. And so I think it's really important to be mindful about whose voices are we uplifting when we talk about community action right? So there's people who have been historically privileged, um, and they have to value uplifting people who have uh, environmental and community wisdom, because they're the ones with the centuries of knowledge on how to repair this broken relationship, you know, and the number one uh, uh, community, what I think of, what that comes to mind when I think of this, is indigenous communities. And I think they have this concept um, that I really value um, that I think you've touched briefly on, which is this concept of I it versus I thou. So when we think of our community as I it, we are in a competitive nature. We use things for the sake of using things. You know, it's like you're an it and I am the I, and we put down others and try to bring ourselves up and and you know use our names, like try to get our names out there as like that's the value add is is bumping our names up. But when we shift that perspective, which is very destructive, instead to the I-thou perspective, you know, it's I and thou. You are another important, valuable creature that is worth value being, you know, worth valuing and worth listening to. And in, in indigenous cultures, for example, when uh, a lot of indigenous cultures see a mountain or they refer to a mountain, they don't use the pronoun of it, right? They don't call it an it. They call it a thou. They call it as they would call another human being because they understand that it is a powerful part of the ecosystem that is worth our reverence. And so I think making sure that we turn to the communities that have the wisdom that we've been harming in a lot of different ways and who've suffered the brunt of environmental damage and pollution, and we say, how can we give you the microphone and lift up your voice rather than, can you just sign off on this so it looks like we have your backing? I think that that's true intentional respect, and it's it's actually the way we're going to get out of this mess. So yeah, I think community and intentional community building is incredibly important. Yeah. Absolutely. Me too. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I, you know, I also think that a common theme that's been running through this conversation is sort of, um, it's worth citing like event or example of something and then lesson learned from it. And I think that that model is so important and these conversations are really important to have because we're learning from each other and we're sharing this information of like, all right, something got hard, but I, I 
um, healed from it or I'm still healing from it and I've learned this from it and I wouldn't be where I am now without it. And so I'm wondering, you know, there's so many things that you could cite in, in thinking about the challenges we face in the climate space. But what are some of like, in your experience and on your journey, what have been some of the biggest challenges for you to work in this space? Yeah. um, I think one of the biggest challenges that I see in myself and that I see in others who are already, you know, conscious in the conservation space, they know they want to do conservation work. And then also those who um, are are not yet in tune with the desire. Um, I, I think it's this difficulty with with what breaks your heart, you know, moving toward what breaks your heart and figuring out how to properly channel your anger, right? Because I think when we feel angry that, you know, there's there's so much to be angry about in this world, our communities, you know, are getting polluted, the animals that we care about are being harmed, whatever it is for you, you know, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by that anger and to shut it down or to, you know, take that anger and run with it in a way that, you know, becomes violent and and no longer allows for constructive growth with the rest of your community. So I think being able to acknowledge and thank that anger for coming up and guiding you. So step one, listening to it and seeing where it's pointing you. And then step two, with your community, channeling it into efforts that are actually going to be helpful. I think that's one of the most challenging ways is for myself and also for others is, is helping, helping us through that multi-step process. Um, but I think it's the most rewarding as well. Yeah. 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 It, I think that like I totally connect with that too because it's it's like the moments where you let that anger burn like hot and bright that's not sustainable either that's where you run into burnout situations where you're not able to show up for yourself your loved ones in your community in the same way that you envision yourself or you would like to so that is something that I think is is such a great point and something that if folks are working in this space or dealing with anything, I know that there's so much going on right now um, that really makes you angry. I love that, like taking that and and harnessing it in a productive way that isn't going to like completely destroy you or make you unproductive. Um, And then, so I don't like to like totally hone in on challenges and in like the more down moments of working in this space because there is a reason why we do what we do. And I personally get a lot of joy out of it. And I know a lot of other people do. I feel like you probably do too. So I'd love to hear more about like what brings you joy and what are these rewarding, like the most rewarding aspects of working in this space? Yeah. Oh man. I think it's when I meet people from all different types of spaces that they're contributing and, you know, they have this base understanding. Like, it's like we all have all these special experiences and tools and um, things that we can contribute, talents, I guess, right? We all have these talents and interests that we want to use to contribute. But at the end of the day, we're all just little kids who really want to play in the ocean or play in the forest or, (laughs) you know, like that's just what it really comes down to is we want to play and we want to have fun in these beautiful gifts that we've been given, these beautiful spaces that have been gifted to 
to us. And that's what we always come back to. So our day to day, it may look so different. But when I get to see that in someone else, I feel like a little kid uh, on the playground with somebody and we're just like, you know, planning our next game or figuring out how we can enjoy the space together. Um, So to be able to see that shared desire um, and then to be able to see, wow, how cool you have that. And you also have these awesome experiences and talents that are helping you contribute in a unique way that feels like yourself. Like I can see how you're uniquely presenting the way that you want to help. And also I feel connected to you because we share something special. So I think that brings me a lot of joy. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's something that I I think about maybe not necessarily in that exact way, but I love how you frame that. Just like, you know, I have so many moments, like even right now talking to you, I'm like, how lucky am I to have this platform where I can invite people on to share their stories and appreciate them and the work that they're doing. And it's just such a heartwarming um, opportunity for me. I just, every single time I do one of these shows, I, I just feel like overcome with gratitude and joy for just being able to have this, this space to celebrate people. And it's a totally joyful moment for me. So I'm really glad that you, you mentioned that. And just like, seeing people grow. Like the work that we do through the Healthy Ocean Coalition is really centered around helping people achieve their advocacy goals. And yes, it's all, you know, we coordinate. So we're all trying to move toward like certain policies or um, ocean, like a healthy ocean. But everybody, you meet them when they're in different places in their lives and different places with their comfort with advocacy And like, honestly, I feel like it has nothing to do with me. I just love to see everyone grow and succeed. Like that's what it's all about. And I think that that's like a great cap on this. Like the importance of building community and building relationships is it's not necessarily for like your own personal goal. Sometimes it's just to see other people like thrive and be happy and healthy and like the more of that that you can get in a community, the better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's all a part of the journey, right? Like if you pause on your growth or, I mean, it's never really a pause, right? Because we're always growing in some way, but to be able to, to help somebody else up is a part of that bigger journey as well. So yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So how can people follow along with the work that you're doing or get in touch if they're interested in, in learning more or collaborating with you? Yeah, so I'm pretty old school. I don't have, you know, Instagram or, or Twitter or anything like that, but I do have a Facebook occasionally to look for apartments in New York City. So you can find me <laughs> on Facebook. Um, it's just Anna Zii, A N N A Z I A I. I also have a LinkedIn, um, or you can reach me uh, via email. It's my full first name, which is Anahita. So it's A N N A H I T A, and then Z I Z I A I at gmail.com. So this last series of questions I ask all of my guests, it's like a lightning round. Um, no real rules for how fast you need to answer the questions though. Great. <laughs> it's like, I've got my timer going, go. Um, so we'll start with, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're facing? 
Yeah. I mean, maybe this, maybe this is a little basic to say, but it's kind of protecting what we already have. And that's, I think that's the ethos behind, there's a global campaign called 30 by 30. Um, and so the idea is like uh, countries can protect 30% of global land and water by 2030. And it could help thousands, literally thousands of species um, who don't have protection right now. Um, and so I think, and it also can help with, um, sparing about, I think it's like 11 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. So it's a really important movement. Um, and I think it's, it's something that we have a pretty constrained amount of time to achieve, but the benefits, benefits would be, uh, amazing. Uh, and Biden actually, his administration just launched a billion dollar program to do that here in the U.S. to conserve 30% of the lands and waters here in the U.S. by 2030. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a, a very important campaign that I'm excited about. And what are you energized about moving forward? Oh my goodness, there's there's so much to look forward to. You know, I think I mentioned one a little earlier, uh, MPAs, marine protected areas. I just think the concept is so beautiful. You know, we have national parks to be able to do that in the water and to be able to get kids and especially kids who have never been in an ocean. I see that as like something in my future that I could help contribute to is helping people who've never been in the ocean or don't have too much of a, you know, history with it to experience biodiversity. I think that's going to inspire so many people um, to, to join this, this awesome movement. Um, so I think those are something to be excited about and, and help contribute to. And then kind of in a similar vein, President Biden also just proposed a new marine sanctuary, um, off the Northeastern new U.S. in in Hudson Canyon is what it's called. Yeah. And it's going to make the whole area off limits to oil and gas drilling to protect marine life. So I feel like things (laughs) are finally becoming tangible. You know, it's in our backyards. It's just awesome. So it's great. And this last one is sort of a two-part question. You can answer it however it calls to you, whether you do one or both or neither, whatever you want. Um, So what is the best advice you've ever been given? And on the flip side of that, what advice do you have for our listeners? Mm, Yeah. So they're one and the same, actually. Um, I I was on a call I was connecting with a scientist at the Monterey Bay Research Research Aquarium. His name is Bruce Robison. Um, And he was telling me, and and I don't think he even meant it as advice, but he just kept repeating it. And it's what I needed to hear. Like after all of the, you know, background he gave me about like specifics in the ocean conservation space, he just paused and he said, you know, you can do it. You can do it. You know, and it just, it hit me in a way that it hadn't hit me before. And now I have like sticky notes all over my apartment that says (laughs) you can do it on it. Um, And it's just like, you know, to remind us that no matter what walk of life you come from and no matter, you know, what personal uh, voices you struggle with about whether or not this is a space that you think you can enter into or contribute to or whether you have the skills, you absolutely can do it. You know, half of this battle, if not more, is believing in your ability to make that positive change and that it's worth investing in yourself and investing in the rest of the world to do it. So just don't forget that you can do it. I love that. Once again, Anna, another incredible conversation. I feel like this just needs to be like a standing check-in. <laughs> we can make it. Us. I'm open to it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
where I'm like, oh, I'm going to come down to New York and hang out. Um, <laughs> Always welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. I'm so glad that we connected and I'm really looking forward to continuing to stay in touch and finding all of the different ways that we can support and lift each other up. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jenna, for having me. And thank you for this podcast. It's been such a pleasure. I would also like to thank the listeners. If you liked this show and want to hear more of this show or others like it, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the American Shoreline Podcast Network. If you like social media, you can find us online. Um, We are at Coastal News 365 on Instagram and Twitter. On Facebook, we are the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and you can connect with me personally. On Instagram, I am at Jenna Valente, and on Twitter, I am at Yenna Benna. So please find us online, and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines.